Now, this chapter contains the downfall of Babylon, which was foretold by Daniel as he read the handwriting on the wall at the feast of Belshazzar. Now, we have in the first four verses the feast of Belshazzar. Then you have the fingers of God writing upon the wall, verses 5 through 7. Then you have the failure of the wise men to read the handwriting, and Daniel is summoned from retirement, verses 8 through 12. And then face to face with the king, Daniel flattered, rejects the gifts, but agrees to interpret the handwriting, and found warning and finest written over the kingdom of Babylon is the interpretation. And then the last 30 and 31, the fall of Babylon, fulfillment that very night. Now, actually, this chapter projects us into the future from the events of the last chapter. A great deal has taken place, and this is just a chapter lifted again out of the historical records of Babylon, and we've moved down a great deal. We open with Belshazzar the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords. He drank wine before the thousand. Now, that's verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, who was Belshazzar? How did he get on the throne? Last time it was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, in view of the fact that this man Belshazzar has been a controversial figure of history, I think that we ought to just pause just a moment to look at his position in history. Even Dean Farah wrote, there was no such king as Belshazzar. And Sir Herbert Rawlinson has refuted this point of denial, for he found a clay cylinder in the ruins of Chaldea on which the name of Belshazzar was inscribed as the eldest son of Nabonidus. It asserts that he was associated with his father in the latter days of his reign. Now, I think probably we ought to have a resume here of the events that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar, and I think it might be helpful here. You see, at the death of Nebuchadnezzar, his only son, Ethel Merodach, succeeded him to the throne. It is about 561 B.C., and he was murdered by Nergal Sherezer, who had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters and replaced him on the throne. That was about 559 B.C. And Nergal Sherezer was succeeded by his young son, who reigned only a few months before he was murdered by Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was the husband of another daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nabonidus, the last ruler of the Babylonian empire, spent much of his reign away from the kingdom on foreign expeditions. And Belshazzar, his son, remained at Babylon as his co-regent. Now, may I say that this reveals how accurate, really, the prophet had been. You remember that Jeremiah, in the 27th chapter, had this to say of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm reading now. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. 
and all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come, and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. In other words, the Babylonian kingdom would last through the reign of a son and a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and that would end the reign of the Babylonian kingdom as the head of gold. So that we have given to us here the background for this man Belshazzar. And by the way, that was a prayer of Nabonidus to the moon god for his son was discovered on a clay cylinder. And it reads like this, My son, the offspring of my heart, might honor his godhead and not give himself to sin. And Herodotus, the Greek historian, he also mentions this and confirms it. Now, Nabonidus was on the field of battle, while Belshazzar's son, you see, remained in Babylon. And you will notice, and we'll call attention to it when we go through, when Belshazzar offered Daniel a position, it was to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, why did he pick that odd number? Why didn't he say, you'll be next to me, second ruler? Because Belshazzar was number two. His father was really the king. And it was during this banquet are actually before it that Gabrias, the Persian general, he was outside, and I should say actually the Median general, he was besieging the city from without. Now, Xenophon, the Greek historian, describes how they took the city by detouring the canal of the Euphrates River back into its main channel and then by letting their army flow under the walls of the city. So, friends, this chapter that for many years the critic discounted today is confirmed by secular history. And I don't like to say it that way. I'd rather say that secular history is confirmed by the Word of God because we do know, even including this historian Herodotus, they were habitual liars. You can't always depend on what they write. But it's interesting to note that we're dealing here with that which is history. Now, we also note here the arrogance of this young upstart, Belshazzar. He put on this lavish affair while the armies of Gabrias were in full view of the city. You see, Gabrias was quite an engineer, and he'd moved out because the city of Babylon was a tremendous city. And it was there in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, actually in the Euphrates Valley. And this city was said to be impregnable. And at least Belshazzar believed it. And he does this very arrogant thing, putting on this banquet. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had built it to withstand any siege. The city wall was 15 miles square. It was constructed of brick. It was 300 feet high and wide enough for four chariots to travel abreast around the city wall. In other words, they could have put a freeway around the top of the city. And he had supplies of grain and water to last for years. In fact, this canal channeled off of the Euphrates River, went right through the city. Now, this banquet could have been a defiance to the enemy on the outside. 
Or perhaps he wanted to build up the morale of those within. And we're told here it started with a big cocktail party. And liquor today is a temporary prop for weak men and women. Now, some time ago, I made a request to get information from our listeners, if they could help me in supplying any figures about the use of alcohol. And I found out I'm going to ask our listeners for information because I have received more information on this than I thought that existed. And did you know that today, and I have all of this information right here before me, that alcohol is still the number one drug problem today. It's quite interesting. I thought it was rather ironical and hypocritical. A group of well-meaning citizens of Los Angeles, made up of those in schools and politics and church and all that, they met together to discuss the drug problem among young people. And you know how they opened their meeting? with a cocktail party. Now, how hypocritical can you be? My friend, there are more alcoholics than there are drug addicts, apparently. And you know that 28,400 of the 50,000 killed in traffic accidents each year had alcohol in their blood at the time of the accident. And I've got figures here that are amazing. 21 billion dollars is being spent annually by Americans for alcoholic beverages. And that's according to the Distilled Spirits Institute. May I say to you, the damage that's doing, the wrecks that it's causing, the homes that today are being absolutely wrecked because of alcohol, why, it is something that is alarming. And this liquor problem has been a problem for mankind. And each nation that has gone down has always gone down with liquor. And let's understand they didn't go down with marijuana. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not for it either. But the point is that I just can't get enthusiastic with all of these reformers today in our government and out of the government who want to solve the drug problem. I say this to them, you give up your cocktail and you let alcohol alone, I'll listen to you, but until then, brother, I don't care for your hypocrisy. May I say to you, old Belshazzar, he started off with a big cocktail party and he got them all high so that enjoy the banquet that he was going to put on for them. Now, let's look at this, verses 2 and 3. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. Now, You see that this man here is not only defying the enemy outside, but now under the influence of alcohol, he does an audacious thing 
that his grandfather would never have done. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, he was an old pagan heathen king, and he brought those vessels down. When he came to a knowledge of the living and true God, he had them stored away. And Belshazzar, I guess as a boy growing up in the palace, that was a no-no. He was to let those alone. And now he drags them out, and they are going to serve the guests with these. Now, let's understand one thing. They're not holy vessels anymore. Holy means that which is set aside for the use of God. But he is defying God by this act. And today, men are defying God, but God's got plenty of time. I think it's been quite interesting. Ever since I've been in the ministry, I get letters, and I think I have lived during about six presidents since I've been a minister. Why don't you say something about... Why doesn't God deal with this man? Do you know that I just went down the list, all those presidents, they're all dead. Just give God time, friends. He takes care of the situation. He'll handle it. And he's going to take care of Belshazzar. So they now drag in the vessels. And the king and his thousand guests, they became drunk. And under the influence of liquor, he did a blasphemous thing. And so they bring these in. And he'd been warned about this, you know. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, that without remedy. God has said that in Proverbs 29.1. Now all of them were beastly drunk, and it was a scene of debauchery and licentiousness. Ever since I was a boy, I've heard preachers preach on this banquet of Belshazzar. And he must have had some banquet, according to some preachers I've listened to, Tell the truth, all of us made a trip to a nightclub vicariously. And we generally enjoyed the sermon because he told about the dancing girls and the drinking and the laughter and all of that sort of thing. And we all enjoyed it. (laughs) And nothing's mentioned here about it, but you can draw on your imagination, you know. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and brass, of iron, of wood and stone, They toasted them all, and it would take more than one night to toast all of them they had in Babylon. They cloaked their sin as an act of worship, you see. Now, we see God moves in, and God closes in. Verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. In other words, God now directly intervened. He did not speak by dream or vision, because this is a man he doesn't intend to reach. Even God would not endure this impious insult to heaven. He wrote on the wall of the banqueting hall. And was it done in anger? Very frankly, I think it was. (laughs) But I think that the one who wrote this is the same one who wrote on the sand when they brought a sinful woman before him. Here it's a message of doom. He wrote forgiveness on that sand, and he shed his blood to fall on that ground there that she might be saved. And this king had ignored the God of heaven. Daniel makes that clear to him, by the way. Verse 6, then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one 
against another. The old boy couldn't stand up. He was too drunk to stand up a few moments ago, but now he's sober. Because when he saw that on the wall, that sobered him. But he still can't stand. He's scared to death. He's overwhelmed with fear. And so the king cried aloud. This is verse 7 now of the fifth chapter of Daniel. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing, show me the interpretation thereof, shall be clothed with scarlet, and have a chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Notice that, third ruler of the kingdom, how accurate Daniel is. man who wrote this book had to be there or know something about it. Now, you see, when Belshazzar finally got his senses back, he had these wise men trotted in, and he asked them to give him the interpretation, offer him a handsome reward, and all they could do was just stand there looking at it. They didn't know the answer. And I want to tell you, they are on the horns of a dilemma here, just what to do. Verse 8, Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known the king the interpretation thereof. Now, this is the third time the wise men of Babylon have failed. And the third time, you don't hit the ball, you're out. And I think this put them out of business that night. Verse 9, Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. You can imagine there is in that banquet room where a few moments before they were all laughing and drunk. Now they're sober and perplexed and troubled. And puzzled, verse 10, now through 12, Now the queen, by the reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting house. She's the queen mother. Now she has heard about what's happening at this banquet. And so she comes in. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father. Now, you understand that relationships were indicated with one word. And this could be father, or it could be grandfather, or great-grandfather, or great-great-great-grandfather. Now, will you notice, She's recommending that Daniel be called. Let me drop down and read the last part of verse 12. Now let Daniel be called, and he'll show the interpretation. The queen mother now comes in to help her grandson out of this predicament that he's in. Well, do you notice what happens now? Daniel's brought in. He'd been set aside. I imagine after Nebuchadnezzar, they got rid of him in the sense that he was pushed out of office. Verse 13 and 14, Then was Daniel brought in before the king. The king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee, and the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding, excellent wisdom is found in thee. Now he's brought in out of retirement, and he's being buttered up, and now He says, these wise men have failed, and I want to know if you can give the interpretation, and if you can, I'm going to make you the third ruler in the kingdom. And so the king offers him the same reward he offered to all the wise men. And listen to Daniel, verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, 
give thy rewards to another, yet I'll read the writing unto the king, make known to him the interpretation. Now, Daniel spurned the gifts of the king, and he was absolutely contemptuous of Belshazzar. And I'm sure if this man Belshazzar hadn't been filled with fear, he would not have ignored it as he apparently did. And after all, Daniel didn't want the reward. Why did he need it? He wouldn't have it but a few hours. Verse 18 through 24 now. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for thy majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew. Whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he set up. And whom he would, he put down. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute ruler on this earth. I take it there's actually been no world ruler like him and will not be until Antichrist rules. And so Daniel now, before he interprets that handwriting on the wall, and there it is up there, and I think real neon lights, and so far nobody's been able to interpret it. He gives this young king who is reigning under his father, he gives him the best sermon that probably could be ever given to a young man. And now Daniel's not that young man that went in the presence of an old king, Nebuchadnezzar, but now he's an old man that goes in the presence of a young king. And there's no generation gap here either. There wasn't before, and there isn't here. Now will you listen to him, beginning now with verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up, now he's reciting for Belshazzar's benefit, of how God had dealt with his father, who actually hears his grandfather, that he had put him on the throne, and he gave him a world kingdom. And then he recites to him the experience he'd had. But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him, and he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of man, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways." Hast thou not glorified? Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. Now you see, Daniel preaches a very pointed and powerful sermon to Belshazzar before he interprets the handwriting. He informs the king here that God has given the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. He reminds him that Nebuchadnezzar had been an absolute sovereign whom no man could question or hinder and whose wishes and whims were the law of the realm. 
But when he had become filled with pride, God humbled him through a tragic episode. Daniel reminds Belshazzar of his humiliating experience. And you wonder, is Daniel rubbing it in? And I think he is. And he's reminding this young, proud king that if he's being lifted up by pride and drink, or if he's being lifted up by pride, it's either being prompted by drink or he's insane. And now will you notice, Belshazzar was proud and vain. Although he knew of his grandfather's insanity, his descent to the level of a beast, Belshazzar had not profited by his experience. Instead, he had committed sacrilege in using the vessels taken from God's temple in Jerusalem. He defied the living and the true God. And by the profane use of that which was holy, he had mocked God and insulted him. Now knowing the truth, he'd rejected it. God destroys only those who have known the truth and have refused it. You know, during the Great Tribulation period, those who are deluded are those who will have rejected the light. And Paul makes that clear in Second Thessalonians second chapter, verse 9. He says, "...even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion. They should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, the thing that Daniel is doing is announcing to this man the principle by which God operates. And Paul confirms that. And the Lord Jesus himself made it clear. He says, I'm come in my Father's name. You receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. The crowd in Germany that accepted Hitler is the same crowd that had rejected the word of God in Christ. And believe me, friends, when you turn your back on the truth, you are wide open for any cultism that comes along. Why is it that cultsonisms are growing today? and the worship of Satan, and all of this talk about demonism. Why are we seeing the manifestation? It's being manifested in a nation that has had the Word of God and has rejected it. That's the reason we're giving it out. Because I have a feeling, friends, we need to get the Word of God out. That's important today. I wish I could lay it upon your heart. We've got enough preaching. We need the teaching of the Word of God today. What does God say? We have so many of us, including myself, that tell what I think. Well, what difference does it make what I think? It's what God thinks, and that's the thing that's important. Now, you remember the Lord Jesus said, I've come in my name, you rejected me. If another comes in his name, you'll receive. And this man, Nebuchadnezzar, actually was a picture He's the first great world ruler. And the last great world ruler, I think, is going to be as insane as the first one. And I, Christ, when he rules. And he'll be an absolute ruler. Now, the very interesting thing, Daniel now concludes this sermon by stating that the handwriting was from the God whom Belshazzar had spurned and ridiculed, and that Belshazzar was a blasphemer. And the question is, had he committed an unpardonable sin? 
I'll let you answer that. I just know that he had an opportunity here, and he turned it down. Now, I come to a new section here, and he's found wanting, and Finnis is written over the kingdom of Babylon, and that's the interpretation. Now, here is the writing that was up there, and this is the writing that was written. Mini, Mini, Tikel, Euphorson. Now, I can't resist the temptation to tell you the little story about the man that he was a foreigner in this country and he didn't understand English too well and he just didn't go to church. But finally his daughter got him to go to church and her name was Minnie. And so finally he went with Minnie to the church. And unfortunately the pastor took as his text there that day, Minnie, Minnie, Tikalia Farson. And it's well to always interpret that before you give it out like that, I guess. And this man, he was a foreigner. Nothing wrong with that, of course. All of us were that at the beginning when our ancestors came over here. And so he grabbed Minnie, his daughter, by the hand and took her out and said, let's get out of here. And she, when they got out, said, she said, Father, what in the world is the matter? And he said, with a very heavy accent, didn't you hear what that preacher said? She said, yes. Well, what did he say? Well, he said, many, many, come tickle the parson. Well, my friend, that's not the interpretation of this. Mene is translated number, and it's repeated. Number, numbered. And it means the kingdom of Babylon was numbered. God had numbered the Babylonian kingdom. We have an old saying or a common colloquialism, his number is up. That's expressive and accurate, and that's the picture that we have. And you find that, actually, in the Word of God in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And again, may I say to you, I believe that numbers on God's book, when our number comes up, when you and I are going to finish our earthly career, I think God knows it. You and I don't know it. No one else knows it, but he does know it. There was a young fellow that hadn't flown very much. In fact, he hadn't flown at all. And they were trying to get him to take a trip by plane. And he said he didn't want to take a trip by plane. And they asked him the reason for it. He says, well, I don't want to get on that plane. You don't know what might happen to it. says it might go down. His friends assured him, says it doesn't make any difference where you are. If your number comes up, why, it's going to come up. It may not come up on the plane at all. If it isn't time for your number to come up, then you can be sure of one thing, you're perfectly safe on the plane. And this boy said, well, I don't worry about that. He says, my number coming up. He says, I just worry about whether it's time for the number of the pilot to come up. And it'd be bad to be on the plane when his number came up. Well, friends, this word here, mene, mene, means number. God had numbered the Babylonian kingdom. And God keeps track of every moment of every day, and he determines beforehand the length of our days. And friends, I don't think you can change it, to tell the truth. Then, meany, meany, tikel. Tikel means that Babylon had been put on the divine scales. It just simply means weight, and had been found wanting. They just didn't weigh enough. They were lightweight. God had raised up Babylon, and now he was going to put it down. Why? Because Babylon had not measured up to God's standard. 
And we have in two chapters of Revelation about the churches. The Lord Jesus is seen in the midst of the lampstands where the churches are, the seven churches of Asia. He trims the wicks, he pours in the oil, and he snuffs them out when they fail to light. And he judges the church today. Now, we may weigh 16 ounces to the pound on Toledo scales down here, but Christ weighs us on divine scales, and he says to everyone, the church is repent. You have measured up. And he says that to you and me today. You know, our righteousness is not only insufficient, it's filthy rags. Only his righteousness is going to stand the test and weigh out 16 ounces to the pound. We're told in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. It's unto all and upon all them that believe. There's no difference. God weighs mankind, you see. He weighs the actions of mankind. Now, peris here means that the kingdom of Babylon was to be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, the head of gold was being removed, and it was now time for the arms of silver to come into place. God was in supreme command, and God will continue to turn. As the prophet says, God turns and turns and overturns until he comes whose right it is to rule, and he is the one that is coming someday, and until then, God will continue to turn them over. And I think he does a pretty good job. I can remember when Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin were a terror, and people that were Republicans didn't like the Democrats in office, and Democrats didn't like the Republicans in office, and all that crowd's gone now. You see, God, he's still in charge, friends. He's the one that's going to turn and keep turning until he comes whose right it is to rule. And Christ is that stone cut out without hands who's going to establish his kingdom down here. Now in verse 29, and I read here, Then commanded Belshazzar, they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Notice that, third ruler. How accurate the book of Daniel is. You see, this man's father, Nabonidus, was really the king. And this boy, Belshazzar, was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And his father was out in a campaign. And Belshazzar was the second ruler. This is what happened. And history confirms this, friends. Verse 30 and 31 now. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. At the very time this banquet was being held, the Medes were marching underneath the walls of Babylon where the rivers of the canal had flowed. You see, underneath the wall of that city... The canal flowed through the city, made it, by the way, a very beautiful city. But now the waters have been cut off and channeled back into the main stream of the Euphrates River. And this man, Gabrias, is marching his army. And there's the inner city where the palace was. And history says that he was actually, Gabrias and his men were on the inside of the inner city. 
before the guards even detected that anything was wrong. As Xenophon, the Greek historian, records for secular history the count of the way in which the Persians took the city. Belshazzar was slain. He'd been weighed and found warning. And God does that, and he makes an opinion. I don't care what you think or what I think. It's what God thinks. And they use his scales. They don't use mine, and they don't use your standard either. They use God's. God says he was found warning. God says you and I are found warning. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. You and I are just not all wool and a yard wide. We're not warranted to wrinkle and unravel or run down at the heel. You and I, my friend, just don't measure up to God's standard. And we are not on trial today. We're lost. God's offering us salvation. Now, this man turned it down. And Belshazzar was slain. And Darius the Median was now the ruler of the kingdom of silver. And he came with a sudden attack to destroy Babylon. And we have that given prophetically in the 21st chapter of Isaiah. And some time ago, I asked how many people had ever heard a sermon on Isaiah 21. I think it was about one to a hundred at that time said they had heard a sermon on Isaiah 21. Now, I'm not asking for it. But I'm of the opinion that you've not only heard one sermon on Daniel 5, but you've heard many sermons. Now, we find here this statement that is made in Isaiah 21, 5. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. God was overruling. And in a future date, another Babylon will fall by the hand of God. And you have that given to us in the 18th chapter of Revelation. I'm not going to turn to that. Thus ends man's vaunted civilization. Now, that brings us to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is probably the most familiar chapter in the Bible. And it's Daniel in the lion's den. And this is the one that you hear so much about. And very frankly, friends, had you ever stopped to think of it, that Daniel only spent one night in the lion's den? He spent a lifetime from a boy of 17 till he's about 90 in the palace of the king, and it was more dangerous to live in that palace as this man Daniel did than it was to spend a night in the lion's den. Actually, those lions down there couldn't touch him. But yonder in the palace, he was in constant danger. And yet we like to talk about Daniel in the lion's den. I'd like to talk about Daniel in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and then of Nabonidus, and then of Belshazzar, and then of Darius the meeting, and then of Cyrus, the great ruler. He was in constant danger because those men were pagan men, And he had the privilege of leading some of them to the Lord. So actually, he only spent one night in a lion's den. Well, we're going to look at it because it has a message for us today. Now, will you notice chapter 6 is the decree of Darius, the Median. Now, we've moved up a long way. You see, we move from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. Now, from Belshazzar, we move out of the Babylonian kingdom now to the Media Persian Empire. 
to enforce the worship of himself. These rulers always very modest. They wanted to be worshipped. And Daniel is cast into the lion's den for praying to the God of heaven. Now, I would like to give you just something now by way of introduction to get us ready for next time. And as we've indicated, that this is the most familiar chapter in the book of Daniel. And he spent one night in his long life in the lion's den. Now, the chapter concludes this strictly historical section of the book of Daniel. And the episode in Daniel's life, which it records, is another illustration of the keeping power of God, and it's another adumbration of the way in which God will protect the remnant during the Great Tribulation period. This is a counterpart of chapter 3, where God preserved the three friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace. Here, God protects Daniel. Now, if there's a question as to the whereabouts of Daniel in chapter 3, there is a question now as to the whereabouts of the three Hebrew children in this chapter. Surely they would have followed Daniel. Perhaps since there's a lapse of time here, they're no longer living. Chapters 3 and 5 give two aspects of the preservation of the remnant, both of Israel and of the Gentiles, in the Great Tribulation period. That makes this very important. And by the way, it has a message for us today, because we're told, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And you know, I live in a lion's cage. And that lion's cage I live in is this world. And there's a big roaring lion going up and down the cage that I'm in today, and you're in it. And nobody's given us any medal for it, are they? But that's where we are today. Now, I want to begin reading here at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty princes which should be over the whole kingdom and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princess might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Now we move ahead again historically in the book. The chapter opens now with Babylon, the head of gold, has now disappeared. It's been removed from the number one spot as a world power. And now instead of Babylon, we have the Media Persian Empire, and that was represented by the arms of silver that we had in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, you see, we've come to Darius, and he is the Darius. Syaxares the second of secular history. He ruled only two years, and Cyrus was the son of Darius's sister, Mandane and Cambyses, the Persian. And that brought together the Media-Persian Empire. And it now is in power and the world ruler. Now we have the position of Daniel under Darius the Mede here. And we find out that we have another empire, but we also have Daniel in the number one spot of being a prime minister. 
But you'll notice, as we suggested, when we looked at that multimetallic image, the head of gold and silver, brass, iron, iron, and clay, that there's deterioration any way you look at it, deterioration in position, deterioration in the type of metal. And we find now that the inferiority is quite noticeable. Nebuchadnezzar, his reign, as we said, was autocratic and absolute. He did not share authority with anyone. And now Darius here, we're told, has 120 princes who shared the responsibility of rulership with him. And over this group, he placed three presidents who were liaison officers between the princes and the king. And so you have here a distribution of responsibility and rulership. And we're told that they had this position, these three, Daniel was one of them, that the king should have no damage. That suggests that the presidents were to prevent the princes from stealing or undermining the king in any way. Now, Daniel is number one of the three presidents, and I take it that he was a man at this time about 80 years of age. And now I read verse 3 of the sixth chapter of Daniel. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Now, he not only had seniority, but he had superiority, an excellent spirit. This means that Daniel was a spirit-filled man, and the king had such confidence in him that he placed him next to himself in position and power. Now we have here, verses 4 to 9, the plot of the presidents and princes to destroy Daniel. This is something that always you find in politics, you find it in churches, you find it, I think, today in probably any business concern. You find it in schools, you find this everywhere, and even it creeps into the home. And that is jealousy of those that are at the top, jealousy of those that are in the top position. And now I'm reading verse 4 of the sixth chapter of Daniel. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there error or fault found in him. Now, there is one thing for sure, that when you find yourself the number one man in any position today, whether it be in politics, in the church, or actually in the home and in the school, you are the one that those that have a jealous spirit are going to be watching. And if there is a flaw in your life, and if you have an Achilles heel, they are going to determine and discover that weak spot and that may be used against you. Now, Daniel had a remarkable life back of him. They could not find anything in this man's character or anything in his past life that they could seize upon and make something of. Now, there's been many a politician 
wished that he lived a little differently and acted a little differently. And that's true of man. And I mean by that, mankind generally. But today, a child of God ought to live that the charges, which inevitably will be leveled against him, will be a lie. Now, you can't keep people from talking about you, but you can so live as to make them liars when they do talk about you. And that is the thing that we are enjoined as believers. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 2.15, "...that ye may be blameless and harmless." the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then in Acts twenty four sixteen, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. In other words, Paul could lie down at night and go to sleep and not have a bad conscience troubling him. That ought to be true of every believer, a bad conscience. Someone has said that a conscience is something that only a good man can enjoy, and it certainly is true. Now I'm reading verse 5 of the sixth chapter of Daniel. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, Daniel was different. God had made his people different. And he, of course, in his religious practices, when he first was brought down as a boy, a slave, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, why, he asked for a different diet. And from then on, the life of Daniel just happened to be different. Now, these men are aware of that. They said, if we're going to find anything wrong with him, we're going to have to find it in his religion. And then that meant when they say wrong, they mean something they can accuse him of before the king. And so the only vulnerable spot, therefore, in Daniel, as these politicians saw it, was his religion. And this is certainly a case of his good being evil spoken of. And they knew that Daniel was faithful to God and that he was dependent upon it and that his prayer life was quite something that was well known. Therefore, they are now going to have to draw a conflict between the king and Daniel's religion. And that's what they're going to do. Verses 6 and 7 now of the sixth of Daniel, and I'm reading these two verses. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governor and the princes, the counselors and the captives have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, this, you see, is a very subtle plot of these princes and presidents and petty politicians. Now, King Darius was a good man. I think that's obvious in secular history and 
I think that is certainly the implication of Daniel here. But he had a vulnerable spot, and I think many of us have it. And that was, it was his vanity. He yielded to flattery. And a great many people do that. I think one of the tragedies today is that we have many Christians, especially Christians of means, and they only give to those organizations where the leader of the organization butters them up, flatters them. And now I'm not just talking through my hat, because I know this. I have been now in several places and have met some of these people. They're very fine Christians, but they have that weakness of just being flattered and We were at dinner with some friends, and I won't say any more other than they told about this Christian leader had been there and said how wonderful they were and this other Christian leader. And I said to my wife when we left that evening, I said, if I have to stoop to flattering people in order to run through the Bible radio program, I'll go off the air. I said, God's going to have to speak to people's hearts. And I personally think today that it brings the cause of Christ into disrepute and disgrace when there are those who will stoop to flatter and those that will stoop to listen to it and be carried away by that. I a long time ago discovered that I'm not as bad as my enemies say I am and I'm not nearly as good as my friends say that I am. So there's always that danger of being flattered. I used to tell the boys in seminary, I said, fellas, I don't care how sorry you are as a preacher, and I don't care what church you go to, the Lord always has in all of these places some dear lady, and she's going to tell you how wonderful you are. And I said, there'll be one of them that'll come up to you after you preach, one of the lousiest sermons in the world. And she'll say, My, I think you're another Dwight L. Moody on the scene. And I said, Now, that's nice to have dear ladies like that that want to encourage you. But I said, Young man, the danger of that is don't believe them. Just don't believe them, because there's danger if you do. May I say to you that they flattered this man, and he yielded to it. And so... He thought, my, this is great. And he drafted a bill, and they made a statue of the king, and he's elevating himself to the position of deity. Prayers only to be offered to him. Verses 8 and 9, now the 6th of Daniel. Let me read this. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. He yielded, you see, to his weakness. And now there is this decree that's gone out, signed by the king, and it can't be changed. Even the king of the Medes and Persians can't change it after it's passed. So it puts Daniel in a bad spot. Now, will you notice the prayer of Daniel and the accusation of the presidents and princes We begin at verse 10 of the sixth chapter of Daniel. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, 
he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now, notice the reaction of Daniel to this new law. He did not do anything that was audacious or foolhardy when he opened those windows. He'd been doing it for years. In other words, he just didn't back down. He did not act in a cowardly and compromising manner by closing the windows. He just went about his usual prayer life. And I would like to say that he kneeled. Someone says, what is the proper posture of prayer? I doubt whether that's the important thing. It was Victor Hugo who said years ago that the soul that's on its knees many times regardless of the position of the body. And I think that is the important thing, is the posture of the spirit of man. But if you want a posture, it's kneeling, and you have that set before us here. And you'll notice he prayed toward Jerusalem. That was the direction of Daniel's life, and he didn't intend to change it in the latter days. Prayed toward Jerusalem. And may I say that we're living in a day when the Lord says, Neither in the under Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem will man worship God, but you worship him today in spirit and in truth. That is the important thing. Now, I continue to move on. I'd love to stay there and talk about this matter of prayer, but we must move on. Verse 11, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. You see, they were waiting for him, and it was really a compliment. They had a feeling he had the reputation that he would not back down, and he didn't. Verse 12, now, Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, Things true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Well, they called attention to the fact that Daniel was disobeying. He was with an open window praying toward Jerusalem. And believe me, it was something that distressed the king. We're told in verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. Now, he can't change his own law. Nebuchadnezzar could have, but not now. You see, there's deterioration down to where we are today. Verse 15, Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persian is, that no decree nor stature which the king established may be changed. And so... Now Daniel is going to be put in a lion's den, nothing the king can do about it. Now we have verse 16. Then the king commanded, they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And I'm of the opinion the king didn't believe that. I think that that was one of these half-hearted things that some of us saints say today. We say to somebody else, oh, the Lord will take care of you. And when you and I get in that predicament, we don't quite trust him like that. 
Now, this king, though, has come a long ways. He recognizes that the God of Daniel was omnipotent and sovereign. He could deliver him. And he also saw that Daniel was faithful to God. Daniel's testimony in the dissolute court of two world powers is nothing short of miraculous. And his unaffected and unassuming life was a powerful witness to the saving grace of God in that day. Well, they put a stone against the mouth of the lion's den, and Daniel spent the night down there. Now, these lions were fierce and wild beasts. They were not toothless lions. I remember years ago that there was a man that got a job in a zoo, and they wanted him to go in the lion's cage to feed the lions. And he said, no. And the keeper says, look, he said, those lions are toothless. And he said, yes, says, I noticed that. But he said, they could gum me to death. Well, these lions had teeth, and they were fierce lions. But the safest place that night just happened to be the lion's den. And I think Daniel got a pretty good night's sleep down there. And the interesting thing is, it was the king that was in danger more than Daniel. Now, will you notice verse 18? Then the king went to his palace, passed the night fasting. He didn't sleep. Daniel did. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. He passed a sleepless night due to his concern for Daniel. Then in verses 19 and 20, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. When he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Well, I don't know whether the king expected Daniel to answer, but Daniel answered. And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. And he said, Did you have a good night? And of course, the king didn't have a good night. Daniel had a good night. And now verse 23, Then was the king exceedingly glad for him, commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Now we find Daniel lifted to a very high position. And we're told, the last verse, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And that is the man also that Daniel led to a knowledge of the living God. This man, Daniel, is one of the great men of Scripture. Now, next time, we go to the prophetic section. So, until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.